You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation Podcast Network. Hosted by Blake Murphy 7, all about your Arizona Cardinals. And welcome in. This is the Revenge of the Birds podcast, aka the ROTB pod. And I am your host, Blake Murphy7 on Twitter. Today, a pretty quick show because it is the offseason after all, but there were a few topics I felt were important enough to hit on and discuss. Obviously, we've got some of the uh, rookie mini camp, a little bit more of uh, Kyler with Marquise Hollywood Brown, uh, his pre- previous teammate, CD Lamb. Most of the focus today, though, will be on the start of OTAs as well as a couple of key signings. Uh, I've got a big announcement for the Cardinals on television, not in the national game sense, but from an HBO sense. I'll wrap it up at the end of the episode with a little bit of Q&A. Uh, as we kind of break into it, um, let's talk at least a little bit about the news that dropped today that was probably the biggest, and that would be the signing of former Chiefs running back Daryl Williams to a one-year deal for the veteran minimum. Now, this is a signing that I think was projected for some time. This was a signing that uh, probably could have seen coming. The Arizona Cardinals, for one reason or another, have always seemed to want to have a second veteran back to pair with their starting running back. We've seen this over the years as uh, from the likes of the Richard Mendenhall signing with Andre Ellington backing him up, David Johnson with Chris Johnson. You can even look at the Cliff Kingsbury era of how David Johnson had Chase Edmonds. Um, you had a veteran with a young player for the most part, and then they traded for another veteran in Kenyon Drake. This is an example, I think, at least of the Chase Edmonds role probably has an actual definition now for the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, Darrell, uh, Darrell Williams, of course, comes out of Kansas City. He is 27 years old, uh, was praised by Patrick Mahomes uh, in the reveal tweet from Jordan Schultz, uh, which is interesting. But when you think about the Cardinals with Cliff Kingsbury, uh, there's a certain level of trust that Cliff has with uh, his former players and players he is not familiar with. Some of this can also be extended to uh, just familiarity in multiple levels. Look at the Cardinals with their previous running back, James Conner. That signing was one that was pretty predictable because of the fact that the Arizona Cardinals, excuse me, Arizona Cardinals running backs coach was formerly the Steelers running backs coach. He got to coach James Conner. So when you bring in a player that you don't have any connections with, it's not like this is a guy that played at Texas Tech or anything. That's where it becomes interesting as far as for how some of those relationships work out. What's even more interesting, I think, is the profile. Uh, He's a 5'11", 219 pounds, but he's listed at, probably plays maybe closer to about 215. Um, Has at least a bit of juice, but the biggest thing that he has been, for the most part, is a backup running back, signed as an undrafted free agent. He's a bit on the older side, 23 years old. Ended up going in six games, 12 games. Finally played a full 16-game season in 2020 for the Chiefs. Ended up only with 169 rushing yards that year and 116 pass catching yards. Now, this year, in a lot of ways, was maybe not necessarily his breakout year. But as we saw, the Chiefs use multiple running backs along with uh, Clyde Edwards-Alaire, their first-round pick at running back, primarily on the sideline injured. Williams got a lot of those receptions in the passing game. Ended up with a total of... 
Uh, I believe it was 57 targets, 47 catches for 452 yards, so about 10 yards of reception. Now, this is the Andy Reid offense, of course. The Andy Reid offense is infamous for getting the most out of its pass-catching running backs, in part because Andy is such a great play caller. But it's not like the Cardinals have not used their running backs as receivers in the past either. We saw that with James Conner getting multiple receiving touchdowns, being used down the field a bit. We saw Chase Edmonds being able to line up in the slot. And we've seen how the Cardinals essentially have even treated Rondale Moore in some regards like a running back because of the receiving ability. Now, he also, this year, Daryl, uh, I would say at least Williams, I kept thinking Damian Williams in my head, the other Chiefs Williams running back, at 144 rushes, 558 yards, only 3.9 yards a carry. Now, the Chiefs did have one of the worst rushing attacks in the NFL, but it does feel very much like when you're looking at the profile for a veteran minimum contract, a guy who has gotten about 1,000 yards or so from scrimmage, we are talking also about special teams touches as well, he ends up having about a total of, I should say at least, in his entire career, about less than 1,000 yards rushing over four years, about 700 yards receiving. He profiles as a slightly larger receiving back that could take on that Chase Edmonds third down role. That could take a few carries and at least for sure some of the more intensive pass catching duties away from James Conner, be a good pass protector. Now, the first thing I think people thought about when they saw this signing was it had nothing to do really with James Conner. So Conner's contract, the way that it was set up and established, was pretty much makes him the lead running back for at least this year. Maybe it does for next year as well. I could see the Cardinals going after a running back, especially if Conner you know, gets dinged up, their rushing attack is not doing well. They put a lot of their money into signing they're free agents for the most part, and then they want to say, all right, we're going to bring in James, and we'll draft a running back to essentially replace him. That could be possible a year down the road, but James Conner is still going to be the featured back for Arizona just due to the contract he has signed. That would put Williams in this contract, not necessarily even as the number two running back, but as in competition for that number two role. Now, what does this mean, of course, for the likes of Eno Benjamin? What does it mean for Jonathan Ward? What does it even mean for their draft pick, sixth-rounder Keontae Ingram? I think the biggest thing you can look at is, and this is what I said pre-draft, was I felt the Cardinals, when you looked at how things lined up with Eno Benjamin, looked at how Jonathan Ward was probably not a guy you wanted to get a ton of carries in the rushing game. He's much more of a special teams type of player. The fact they brought Williams in made you think, okay, as long as he's willing to take a veteran minimum contract or not that much, it means that he will probably be able to take on that Chase Edmonds role. Thus, you're looking for drafting someone to replace that James Conner role, kind of your can catch the ball and run with it, being able to get yardage on the ground. That's the mold that Keontae Ingram has been. Now, whether Ingram is going to be athletic enough to step into that role as a starter full-time, whether it's this year or next year, for sure, I think the Cardinals at least made an effort to go out and, in some cases, you could argue, injury-proof a lot of their roster. James Conner goes down, you've got Keontae Ingram. If Eno Benjamin's the starter or if Williams is the starter, either goes down, you've got a backup behind them. I think the question, though, that comes up is which running back will probably not be making the Cardinals roster this year? That's a big deal because you can at least take a look at their roster and say there's no way they're keeping five running backs this year. Uh, they've got enough players now that are signed where someone's probably not going to make it through camp. 
Now, for how the general contract structure breaks out after James Conner, there's not really any clues that we get. You've got a bunch of sixth and seventh round picks and an undrafted free agent that makes up essentially the rest of your roster. There's not a Chase Edmonds fourth round draft pick in sight. So I think what this means is not that necessarily the Cardinals are looking for a complete replacement for the likes of Chase Edmonds, but more that I think that they're looking for someone to push, you know, Benjamin, and we'll probably get a good glimpse in camp as to whether or not Eno ends up actually having a shot at the Cardinals roster, or if we end up seeing this be something that could push out the likes of Jonathan Ward and the Cardinals go with more of the rushing and receiving upside versus focusing on strong special teams play. Because of right now, I would say that I think that the person whose job is in most danger by this would be Eno Benjamin. And it's because we've seen him get some carries. I know that he's gotten a lot of fans ultimately due to the Arizona State. He was one of the most effective running backs there. He was a seventh-round pick, and reportedly he was in danger of missing the roster in year one in part because uh, he just has not been the special teams type player that Jonathan Ward has. He has not been an elite, I think you can say, maybe not not having to say Chase Edmonds or a David Johnson level type of back in the receiving game. Uh, he seemed like he's been good, but he has not been targeted on some of those plays. We've also seen at least how um, when the Cardinals were able to kind of switch in when they saw Chase Edmonds go down and James Conner got the carries, when both were injured, we saw a few Eno carries. But we also at least saw them being able to be a little bit more of a trailing in some of those games. They prefer to have a strong rushing attack and being able to essentially use these running backs, whether it's as a check down or being able to put them into pass protection situations that we've seen that's been super important. And I think that may be the thing to bring up. If Eno Benjamin is not going to be up to par in pass protection and if Jonathan Ward is still a better special teamer, that's when I think that you could say that that lineup for the Cardinals that makes the most sense would be bet on some of the upside of Ingram, given his size and receiving profile, uh, give him a year knowing that this is out of all the draft picks you could have targeted. The first one that you did when it came from all the way from dropping off from uh, the round three pick, uh, pick 100, almost a round four pick, all the way to the sixth round, their first pick was that player as a running back. And that tells me that they at least have enough confidence in him to say they probably had a higher grade on him than they did most of not just those other day three players, but about other players that were probably taken in maybe as early as round four and for sure round five as well. Maybe that means that you could look at Keontae Ingram as not necessarily a lock for this roster, but it might be the fact that they are now have shown you what they think of Eno Benjamin and to that matter, perhaps even Jonathan Ward. Uh, they went out and signed James Conner to a two-year deal versus bringing back for one-year deal. They've also went out and drafted a running back, and they signed a second running back who probably has a better profile physically than Eno Benjamin would and has NFL experience. He's got a lot more carries. He's actually been able to tote the rock. and He's caught balls, at least, and been an effective receiver in the passing game. So I think that's the biggest takeaway that we can see from that is going to be that I think Eno Benjamin is in a bit of trouble. Now, if his competition is not necessarily Darrell Williams and Williams is locked into that number two running back role, then all that Eno's trying to do is hold off Jonathan Ward 
showcasing that he's got a better skill set to be able to go on the field as the third running back that he can play well on special teams. If he can do that, then I think that that would be the spot where he could end up on the final 53-man roster. Now, let's go ahead and talk a little bit now about the rest of the OTAs. The biggest thing, and this is something I heard this like a day before it happened, came out, uh, kind of been the narrative of some of the offseason, but was just kind of confirmed, was that don't expect Kyler Murray to be at any of the voluntary uh, opportunities the Cardinals were going to have as far as the OTAs. And the biggest area for that, for the most part, is that there's a, a lot of players who are missing. But the biggest one, of course, was Kyler Murray. And this is where it comes down to in the NFL. If you look at the NFL, you see at least that all of the focus has been on Kyler Murray not being at OTAs. Then that makes it really interesting when you look at some of the other players who are not. Like the biggest ones, at least, that stand out are a lot of the other players. You've got... DeAndre Hopkins is missing from Team Team One of Voluntary OTAs. Hollywood Brown was not there. Uh, James Conner was not there. He even participated in some of the Cardinals offseason at their facility. DJ Humphreys, who's their Pro Bowl left tackle. Rodney Hudson, the Pro Bowl center they traded for. Marcus Golden, their prime pass rusher. As well as Byron Murphy, who himself is in a contract year, would be looking for a new contract. Now, what's interesting, at least for the most part, is... James Conner was there for the workouts and some of the other stuff that was there, but was not necessarily for uh, the OTAs. And a lot of these, again, as we've said, are voluntary. They're not needed to do. But because of the fact that Kyler Murray is looking for a new deal and he's a quarterback, I think it leads to what I'll call the drama approach. And this is the idea of whenever something comes up that's some form of drama in the NFL, people love it. One of the biggest things of drama, I think, over the last few years was the Russell Wilson, Aaron Rodgers saga, the Kyler Murray Instagram saga. Anytime that you've got a player who looks like they don't want to be with their team anymore or is holding out for a new deal, it creates drama because it creates something that's unknown. Hey, is Kyler Murray, let's say, let's take this to the maximum extreme unknown. Kyler Murray doesn't want a new deal. Therefore, you look at taking that slope all the way down, you slip, slip, slide down it. Kyler Murray is going to be traded to a brand new team or Kyler Murray will hold out into the regular season until he gets a new deal. And that will then cause the Cardinals to have their backup quarterback be taking over and playing games because of this player wanting this new type of deal. There's also drama that can come up of if quarterbacks and receivers don't get along. There's also drama that can come up when it comes to players having beef with one another. The fact that you saw the majority of the Cardinals, uh, Pro Bowl talent were not there for day one of the OTAs and will probably not be there this week. No one's talking about DeAndre Hopkins missing OTAs and thinking that he's not going to be back on the field as soon as possible week seven. Uh, James Conner has had that same type of work method mentality. Humphreys, Hudson, that's like three of your top offensive linemen and Marcus Golden who are not there. Uh, again, this is where I think the idea of voluntary comes up. Now, some people have said don't you want your quarterback to be there? And I think this is kind of the avenue of if there was a preference to be there, I think that there's an idea, an ideal that many fans have that doesn't quite mesh up with reality. It's the idea that your quarterback is the first one on the field, the last one off. He's at everything leading to the team activities. The person who this probably best describes, if you look at that, would be the likes of a J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt's been essentially living at the Cardinal Center this offseason. You always see him there working out. Every free agent that gets brought in meets JJ. Um, every single time it feels like that he's there for anything, he's out there on the field. 
I think that's what a lot of people want is kind of that type of a grind, that work ethic. It's something that feels very much of this kind of individualist spirit. But I think the other thing that's missing with that is that's also J.J.'s strength. Like, J.J. Watt is a player who he knows that his best strength is partially to be a guy that helps motivate other players. He's a guy that loves being able to be kind of the sun that other players can orbit around and that together makes a great galaxy. It's not to say that there's a selfishness involved, uh, but that is ultimately a part of his strength. There's also different types of players kind of different egos that go attached to it. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins is a guy that has not practiced a ton with the team. He doesn't believe in practicing a whole lot. He does get practice in, but it's not nearly as much. And he's gone out to go on and have a Hall of Fame type career. So the way I would look at this also, at least, is, uh, oh, um, that goes without saying that Larry Fitzgerald himself was not a guy who did OTAs much. He would not show up unless he had to be there. And he would even talk about how he preferred, he, like he would say, hey, I'm getting in shape, it's just one of the things that has, has to be done. But he would prefer to be away from the facility. And a lot of times we would see that even during the season, he would not practice a ton. And so it's this idea then of should a quarterback be able to do this? And for one reason or another, like, you know, you can look at Fitzgerald, Brady, you can look at other players who have gone on and been stars in the NFL and are not fans of showing up for OTAs. And if you're going to say that A plus B equals C, then that's kind of seems like that would overrule you. So what does it really come down to? What is really the core issue? And I think the core of it is, is that a lot of people are looking at Kyler Murray and seeing a lot of the team's offensive slides the last few years. And a lot of the blame is going to him. There's questions, at least whether about the attitude or leadership. And I think a lot of that ultimately ends up being overblown because in the NFL, it is ultimately a perform type of sport. You know, Tom Brady can run by and yell expletives at a Saints coach and after throwing an interception, which is caught on camera, and he ends up wearing more rings than he can fit onto a single hand. So does it really matter that much to fans if he's not showing up to OTAs? I think there's more of what I would say is a little bit of entitlement of how we want our quarterback to behave a certain way and attributing that idea to, hey, our quarterback is the first one in, he's showing up, he's pushing the teammates, and believing that that will lead to success. The hard part, I think, is, is that we can want this for our quarterbacks and we can want this for leaders, but it doesn't necessarily apply to their skill sets or their strengths. It would be like if you said you wanted to take uh, the likes of a Cliff Kingsbury and say, hey, Cliff, you've done a great job with this Cardinal stuff. Let's move you over to the front office. Now, could that be done? Well, probably. Cliff was at a college before, but he'd have to learn. He'd have to do other areas. That's not one of his strengths. It would be like how I've said with Isaiah Simmons, taking Isaiah Simmons and making him into a pass rusher on the edge is just not one of his strengths. When you take a look at as far as the bend, the moves, he does great with diagnosing and blitzing. He does great when being able to drop back and looking into a coverage area. And we've even seen him be physical and aggressive of being able to knife through holes and making the tackle. But as far as when it comes to the typical Mike linebacker ability of being that kind of stalwart defensive play caller in the middle of the field, the guy who's making the adjustments, kind of that de facto leader. He's not that guy. That's why they went out and tried to bring in the likes of Zayvon Collins, a guy who they felt could be that type of player. We've seen them kind of try out a couple different places. I still think there's a lot of people are coming to agreement that, you know, maybe Simmons is a safety playing linebacker, but he's at least in a spot where his role under Vance Joseph is able to see his skill set excel. We've seen him be able to make plays, make tackles, be able to kind of hunt after the quarterback and 
be able to cover tight ends. That's been something that was important that we saw this year. And even though the production maybe wasn't what people had wanted, we got to see some of the flashes of Isaiah Simmons and where he can succeed. And if Kyler Murray is not one of those rah-rah, here-we-go guys type of players, then trying to expect that from him is really setting him up for failure because then you're saying, hey, Kyler, go out there and be J.J. Watt. And Kyler's like, well, I'm I'm not J.J. Watt. That's kind of, I think, what people are doing in this situation. And a lot of people then will probably look at it and say, well, if a quarterback doesn't do this, things, then he'll fail. And I think that really comes down to ultimately how you feel about a quarterback. Uh, there's a conversation at least that, you know, people have talked about, but the other one that pops up is because Kyler has gone out and had some of, you know, and as far as off-season drama goes, really what it comes down to is deleted the Instagram account, put it back up for the most part. It ended up being, I think, to his words, probably a mistake because it focused a lot more attention on him, put a lot more drama out there than he probably was wanting. Maybe that's not the case. But it was very different when you see, at least as far as for Kyler Murray, from being that type of guy who was going to essentially go out and be the first player on the field, doing all the other stuff, not worrying about some of the areas of contract. Um, what we've seen from his teammates is they've really not had any issues or problems with that, at least not that we've been able to see or has been talked about or even behind the scenes. Because if your quarterback is a guy that you don't like, things will kind of come out about it. And that was part of the case that you looked at with people looking at with between Kyler and Rosen. Part of when you look at with some of the quarterback drama, especially when you talk about with the likes of Kurt Warner and Matt Leinert, where Leinert really wanted just to be the guy and Ken Wisenhunt wanted him to earn the spots and just didn't end up working out, whereas Kurt Warner felt you had to earn your spot every single day. And he ended up learning over time and practice. The comparison here, I think, is not quite on that same level. I think that Kyler Murray is his strengths is being maybe more of a quiet leader who's getting out there, being a bit more demonstrative about what he wants, what he can do, and knowing when he has to step up, stepping up. Uh, the example I think of is back in 2020 where Kyler Murray went and paid for essentially the entire offense to show up in Dallas, work out at his high school, have a night out on the town. Uh, this is all with COVID's at its height, so essentially his whole thing was, hey, we'll fly you guys out, which probably meant some form of either arranging private air transport or being able to make sure that guys who weren't going to be able to have that type of transport were going to be able to make it. And the only player who didn't end up attending that area was Larry Fitzgerald because, as I've said earlier, not that it was because of beef of Kyler, but probably because he just didn't want to get any off-season work in. And it's one of the spots, at least, of, like, if you're going to like Larry Fitzgerald and then try to be down on him or clown him for some of the areas then you have to be consistent in other places too. And I think at the end of the day, you can say what Murray did was a great thing because the team didn't have a facility to go and practice at. They didn't have much else. It was essentially voluntary organized team activities. Just it was a quarterback that did it. And perhaps it's going to be more of the Kyler era of he's just going to be a guy who hangs out with his family in Dallas, works out with the likes of Hollywood Brown, comfortable with doing some of that there. He's, after all, from Dallas. Uh, if you told me that I had to pick... Going to Dallas during the summer, going to Arizona in the summer, I'm more comfortable with the Arizona heat. Um, I know I've got a workplace, at least, that I go work remote. Currently works over in Florida. Between you and me, Florida's humidity is something that I would not prefer to be around. Now, if it's a requirement of, hey, we're flying, putting everyone out here, cool. Put me on the next plane. I'm good to go there. But for something that's voluntary, I don't think I felt this as much as many fans do. I think that there is an ideal that people have had as far as for Arizona saying, hey, these guys, at least for that, how do you know they want to win? Are they dedicated? 
And so if you're going to question if DeAndre Hopkins and James Conner and Marcus Golden want to win, that's one thing. But at the end of the day, it's a results-oriented business. This will be my last point on this. The results ultimately speak for themselves. And in a lot of ways, I think we try to attribute what happens or what goes wrong with a sports team to things that have happened before. So great example. Oh, man, the Cardinals got let down the second half. You see Kyler's body language slumps. They're losing games more. Like he is simply not playing well and is bringing the team down because they know he's not playing well. He's got to go out there and motivate his players. Now, maybe that's the reality. Maybe a lot of that was DeAndre Hopkins was not there on the field, and the Cardinals put on his place a former undrafted free agent in Antoine Wesley, who obviously is not DeAndre Hopkins, and they didn't change as much else. And they had a lot of other types of injuries down the stretch for the most part. Obviously, their team had essentially been carried early by the likes of J.J. Uh, Watt and some good defensive play from Robert Alford. Maybe a lot of those things that popped up weren't necessarily on Kyler Murray. Maybe a lot of them ultimately were, where... You saw the injury take place. He comes back. He obviously is healthy and looks runs, but looks and runs around. But maybe he's just a little bit more tentative, or maybe teams are just that much more aware of him being able to run. At the end of the day, I think that with attributing the why that goes in and trying to read into that is ultimately what fans, I think, prefer to do is embracing that narrative. And the narrative for the Cardinals, I think, is a letdown. We can talk about with Phoenix sports and how it works out. Like there's a whole bunch that can be said about just the suffering of the Arizona sports fan and how it looks as though Phoenix Suns seemingly to me, at least in week six and seven, you can say that there was some quit in them. They got roughed up a bit that they were heading down and say the same thing about the Cardinals down the stretch. And those are the narratives that stick. And so I think that rather than trying to build the narrative as it goes and take what is, we try to basically guess and take that narrative and find ways to apply different reasonings behind it. One of the reasonings that I think at least is Kyler Murray not showing up to camp. Does that mean that he's going to hold out? Uh, That's not been the expectation, what I've been told, especially since he's going to lose more money behind all of (laughs) if he doesn't show up. But it does speak to, I think, the importance and power of the narrative as a fan, because if we buy into the wrong narrative as fans, that I think opens the room for a lot of unwarranted and unnecessary even criticism especially because the quarterback here is being targeted. Whereas while the quarterback is the most important player and that's put on the field at the end of the day, if you're trying to put your quarterback and mold him into who he is, like great example is, Hey, I'm going to mold Kyler Murray into my ideal pocket passer. Uh, If you build your offense around that and say, Kyler, I want you consistently throwing the ball over the middle to these tiny slot receiver. And you're talking that to your five, nine quarterback. There's, there's going to be some issues there. I think. I think you have to be able to embrace the strengths that the players have. And I think Kyler Murray's strengths is not that he's not a leader, but I think it's the type of leadership that he shows and demonstrates and has demonstrated before is just a little bit different from what I think many fans have wanted from their quarterback. And the way the players have at least responded has been with praise and with ultimately, I think, excitement in a lot of different ways. And let's hope that we can carry some of that excitement into the season. I'll take a quick break here, at least as far as for that one. Got to got to pay the bills, at least for the most part, as they say. Come back on the other side. Talk a little bit about the Cardinals being on the likes of hard knocks this season in season, which is going to be far more interesting, as well as get to some Q&A questions that you guys have asked. It's going to be all over here after the break. Don't miss it on the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Welcome back to the ROTB pod. Uh, Let's go and... uh... Talk a little bit, at least as we transition, just a a few more thoughts about the 
Cardinals draft class, uh, mostly in context of them sending their tight end, Trey McBride, uh, to the NFL Players Association rookie premiere. There's a place where it's an opportunity for players to be able to ultimately uh, talk to other players, be able to kind of make connections with sponsors, get some pictures for some of those trading cards that are there. Uh, kind of the first time to really see them in uniform. And Trey McBride was the one offensive player who was there. Usually it's a focus on offensive and skill players. Uh, sometimes you'll see an offensive lineman who gets invited. There's also times that you'll see uh, defensive players sometimes get invited, but usually it is for those players who are going to be making the catches, the quarterbacks. Uh, that's just kind of the way that it's been set up. And Trey McBride, at least as a tight end, was one of the players who is eligible to go. And we've seen at least a bit of McBride for the most part through the rookie camp, the mini camp that they've done with the Cardinals. And he kind of fits very much that bro aspect that you think of in a tight end as far as you know, an infectious personality, being laid back, uh, being ultra competitive, um, being also able to kind of see that even though he's maybe not the same size as like the typical tight end, most people when they think of tight end when it comes to the NFL, the only name that really truly pops up now for a while was Jimmy Graham, but it's always going to be associated with Rob Gronkowski. Now, here's the thing. McBride is not quite as athletic as Gronkowski and not quite the same size. And I've seen people wanting to make that comparison and I think that's a disservice to Trey McBride. It's a disservice because that would be like, say you're going to be taking a player who's a second-round quarterback like a Jimmy Garoppolo and comparing him immediately to Tom Brady. And the thing about that that's funny is that that was a real-life situation. Uh, comparing a player to one of the greatest players ever is really hard to do, especially when you're talking about that player and those expectations uh, not ever measuring up for that one as far as her being drafted coming out. The easiest tight end example for this I can think of is, you know, Kyle Pitts went top four, and at no time whatsoever has people even compared or put Trey McBride into the top five picks of the NFL draft. So you're doing a disservice, I think, to the player, but I will say that that's not to say that I'm down on McBride. Now, I think it's more about taking the expectations and making them reasonable because, at the end of the day, you look at not just McBride, but also look at the Arizona Cardinals offense and say that, hey, through their history, Cardinals have never had a tight end go off and have 100 yards receiving or more in a game. The closest they've actually gotten, ironically, was last year with Zach Ertz getting some 85 yards against the Houston Texans in what was his first game as an Arizona Cardinal. That's kind of crazy when you think about how many teams there are in the league and to know that all 31 teams have at least had a tight end who even if they did not remain a star for a long period of time they at least had enough ascendancy to that point where they're able to have a really good game there's other players like travis kelsey or others who have essentially turned themselves into massive weapons and i think that with mcbride if you take your expectations and look at him and say, could we get him onto one of those levels? And some people have called him like a Hayden Hurst. Some have looked at a different level. Some are looking at Mark Andrews, who's been the explosive tight end used in a run-heavy and tight end-heavy offense in Baltimore. I think if you could look at him as a guy who gets maybe, you know, five to 600 balls, uh, or should say yards a year, is able to develop into somewhat of a red zone threat, is able to be a decent blocker, maybe not the dominant blocker you could say but if he could get to max williams level essentially the comparison that i think you would look at would be could you get a zach Ertz like career 
out of a Trey McBride. And Ertz is maybe never thought of as one of those elite tight ends. He's not thought of as a Rob Gronkowski type. Uh, he's not thought of as one of those elite fantasy receiving tight ends that pops up. The other comparison is at least saying that, you know, I, I think of a CJ Uzama, a player who came in for the Bengals, probably didn't hit five to 600 yards every single year. Was never really that featured type of receiver, even in the way that Zach Ertz, at some points, it felt like the Carson Wentz offense went through him because of the way their receiving core lined up. He was essentially the most veteran receiver on the team besides Dallas Goddard. Because of uh, the likes of Alshon Jeffrey just getting banged up near the end of his career. But when you're looking at Ozama, he's a guy who played for four years, was solid for the Bengals, caught touchdowns, um, did super well. If you get that type of a career out of him as a C.J. Uzama, and you look at the history of Cardinals tight ends, especially in the Arizona era, it's not going without a stretch that that four years that he would have spent um, would be potentially the four best years that any tight end in Cardinals history has had. And obviously there's other guys, at least for the most part, you can look at for the most part um, who are a bit older. Um, I like to think at least of maybe this is a little bit of an old stretch at least, but um, I think all the way back to um, – Oh, gosh, this name is escaping me at least. I believe it's going to be Jackie. Um, uh, this is killing me. It's not Jackie Moon. Obviously, Jackie Smith. Jackie Smith is the name, obviously. This is a guy who's, like, played football. Um, he was born in the 1940s. <laughs> You're talking essentially about, you know, your pre-baby boomer type of players for the most part. I think you'd say at least with um, looking at him or even, like, the Roger Worley. That's the last time. Now, Worley was, I think, a cornerback at least. So you're talking at least ultimately about – Players that have essentially not even on this earth anymore for many of them, some of them who are ancient. It's the last time the Cardinals have had decent tight end play. And my goodness, they get CJ Uzama level, then and that's like the, the best that the Cardinals have had. And then you're talking about how, just how bad the position has been. Then that would probably be counted as a win for Arizona in the long run. Now, Maybe it wouldn't measure up to some of the lofty expectations, but I think that when you're looking at the way the Cardinals have gone out and addressed this offseason of not just bringing in weapons, but also understanding at least that there's changes that they're making to their offensive, not just being a bit more tight end heavy, but looking at the age areas, some of the injury previous that we've seen with you know, Zach Ertz he's still playing, but being a bit banged up, and with Max Williams having several years of season-ending season-ending injuries, them deciding to say, hey, we're going to go and do something that we've tried to do before. We've tried to bring in the Troy Nicholas. We've tried to bring in the Rob Hausler. All those guys had potential, but ultimately Nicholas was more of a blocker that people were hoping and projecting to be more of that type of receiver. And he, even as a blocker, just did not have the health to stay on the field and handle that physical nature of the position. Uh, we also saw with Rob Hausler, essentially a guy of small school, never truly developed, was not a blocking tight end. So if we end up seeing the likes of a, a Trey McBride being able to just be above average, he may automatically end up being one of the not just best Cardinal draft picks that Steve Kime has ever made, but one of the uh, perhaps maybe the best all-time tight end in the team's history just due to the struggles and that they've had at the position. It's similar with Kyler Murray. Kyler, if this second contract goes through, 
is expected to this summer, and he finishes that contract, will end up being perhaps the greatest Cardinals quarterback of all time simply just because of uh, the fact that this has been, uh, for lack of a better word, a poverty franchise for quite a long time that has not been able to find stability at some of these prime positions. Uh, coming up next, I'll go and talk a little bit about the Cardinals ending up on Hard Knocks, as well as get to a few of your questions for this week. That'll be here on the last section of the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Be sure to stick around. And we're back with the last section of the Revenge of the Birds podcast. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in so much. Uh, let's talk a bit about Hard Knocks because this is something that I think is important to mention. The Arizona Cardinals will be on uh, this upcoming season of Hard Knocks airing in November. Uh, this is not the Hard Knocks of training camp, however. This is going to be far more of the in-season types of games we've seen, which started last year. And <laughs> boy, did it kick off with a doozy last year watching the collapse of the Indianapolis Colts as they went from essentially being a playoff team to out of the playoff race altogether. So what does this mean for Arizona? Well, General Manager Steve Kime went on the radio, talked about how he wasn't quite as happy about Hard Knocks, but at least appreciated how it was good for the brand in general. And it makes me think that the Cardinals were perhaps not necessarily volunteering for this role. Now, we do know from in the past, when the Cardinals were on... Uh, the previous Amazon television show, All or Nothing, that was driven primarily by Michael Bidwell. He felt they had a special season in tow, believed that they would get a lot of exposure, and it happened to coincide with the team getting a trip to the NFC Championship game, uh, something that All or Nothing has not seen or happened since. In fact, we haven't even seen, for the most part, a team be able to have one of those types of trips. Even the Hard Knocks teams, when they covered the Los Angeles Rams twice, uh, weren't able to hit for either of those Super Bowl years. It's possible that this could speak to the confidence that Michael Bidwell and the Cardinals organization would have in this year to be potentially a very good year for the Arizona Cardinals. I think that maybe you could look at last season, especially now that in hindsight we saw that great start that they got off to as being the year, but it really comes down to ultimately if the Cardinals believe that they're going to simply be better on offense this year, will not be missing too much on defense with Chandler Jones being gone, then you know perhaps they could have a chance to repeat. Now, the biggest thing I thought was interesting was the national reaction. Because most people looked at when this series would be starting in November and were expecting, essentially, based on how the Cardinals season has finished, how Cliff Kingsbury's seasons have finished, and how Kyler Murray has finished a season so far in the NFL, their expectations, essentially, have been, oh, this is great, we get to watch Kyler's collapse in real time. And that was very predominant, a lot of the response that I saw. Which I think is interesting because not only does it kind of show the narrative of what's happened, but I think it shows in a lot of ways something that was different for what we saw the previous season. In the previous year, a lot of people were looking at and were felt disappointed for the Cardinals. People were maybe down or not thinking they were as good, despite the fact that they were contending for the playoffs, just because of the unusual situation of Cliff Kingsbury and Kyler Murray not fitting the typical norms. I think that Kyler's Instagram deletion in a lot of ways has made him appear to be a lot more of a diva or maybe a bit more of this head case that people are turning into a villain. 
And that seems to be kind of the nature of a lot of these quarterbacks who end up being good but don't necessarily go on to win multiple playoff games. There seems to be a benefit of the doubt that's given to some quarterbacks who are able to make the playoffs from their first or second year. And then there's other quarterbacks who don't seem to get that same type of benefit of the doubt. A good example here I think of is you look at Deshaun Watson, you look at the Patrick Mahomes, and even look at other quarterbacks such as the Justin Herberts. I think that Matthew Stafford was certainly in that category up until perhaps this past year. It shows how important the situation is to some of these things, but it does seem that Kyler and the motions that he's made of getting paid a contract when a lot of people would say, hey, we, we don't want to pay him that deal. I think he's made himself a villain to many in the national spotlight. Uh, there is like a fantasy expert who put out a trade request and hey, would, would the Cardinals take Jalen Hurts in two firsts? Uh, would the Eagles take back Kyler Murray? And his whole entire take was, I think that's a little too much to give up for the likes of Kyler Murray. And I think it's a trade that wouldn't work for both sides, uh, partially because I think you can look at what Jalen Hurts has done and think that he's probably a bit better than we're giving credit for, but also probably not quite as good as Kyler Murray is to the point where there's probably not a good enough justification for either side to make a deal like that. If there was going to be a deal like that, I think it's pretty clear, at least. The Cardinals have said no to all of those requests, and the Eagles have built quite a bit around Jalen Hurts and probably put stock into 2023, where in some case, if he doesn't turn out to be the guy, they can have ammo to get it, but I think they've put enough around him that they'll be able to see some success this season. The whole point of that, I think, ultimately is simply the factor that most people look at Kyler Murray the same way they view Dak Prescott, as in not deserving, having issues with it, looking at collapses. And ultimately, what I think that really has done is put these kind of fans into a position where some quarterbacks get a pass and some don't. And it really depends on maybe not necessarily fantasy purposes, but I think it really does depend on having to have that moment where you're the guy. Like that moment where Kyler Murray would have driven the Cardinals down the field and won the game against an Aaron Rodgers. You need to have one of those games that makes you a star. Uh, a good example, at least, being a uh, late comeback, at least against the Dallas Cowboys, at least being able to get that win when it was mostly a defensive battle uh, in the second half with the Cardinals not being able to stop the Cowboys outside of a turnover and Arizona's offense experiencing troubles. And then, of course, obviously the playoff performance, which, you know, you can quote Peyton Manning, quote other things. I think the big crux of it is that things have to go for the NFL in a way where you succeed quickly or you burn out quick. And that's what's unfortunate, because as we've seen, there is no guarantee for success early. Success is very dependent on situation. And if you look at Matthew Stafford and we put him through the ringer of what Kyler Murray had gone through as far as going to Arizona and Detroit, Man, Murray's had a lot more success earlier than Stafford did, you could argue, getting to the playoffs sooner, essentially being able to um, be the same type of quarterback, but he had to go to the Rams in order to actually win a title because the Lions just were not competent enough to really build a team. A lot of that does end up falling back onto the head coach and GM. So it will be interesting to see, can Kyler and the Cardinals be able to push heavy enough in the later part of the season that they're able to reverse some of that narrative, or will it only be confirmed and we end up going into a second year where there was perhaps a down season of sorts and a lot of people will be 
not just second guessing Kingsbury, Kyler, and the entire area, but looking at a lot of the money that they gave and wondering at least if that sort of collapse is going to cause the Cardinals to try to trade off of that deal shortly after signing it, similar to the Carson Wentz saga. I don't think that will be evident, but it is something that's important to note is that time is very short in the NFL to make an impact one way or the other. If the Cardinals end up getting off to a slow start and they're essentially out of it during this hard knocks uh, portion, there's going to be issues that we'll see nationally. Now, I think on a local perspective, we'll get to see uh, some great new faces for the team. Considering that they've gone over or should say gone through a very drastic makeover. The most recognizable player on the team is not even truly one of theirs. It's J.J. Watt, who played for Houston for a number of years. And after that, it would be Kyler. But there's a lot of other players on the team, at least, especially on the defensive side, who have stories to be told. Talking about having those two linebackers who were there present, having a young secondary. There's been essentially no veterans signed this offseason. Byron Murphy is entering year four, and he is the most veteran member of the Cardinals. Uh, secondary outside of say Buda Baker if you're going to count the safety position and on the defensive line essentially it's J.J. Watt a third year or fourth year Kingsley Kiki and a fourth year Zach Allen is pretty much the veteran of that unit there's going to be also some obvious questions with Hopkins being out how he comes back Hollywood Brown there's going to be plenty of good storylines but the only one I think that will matter to fans ultimately and in the end is the Cardinals reversing that trend and winning a playoff game. And part of that is unfortunate because in the NFL, there is no guarantee that a team has that fully under their control. But it is when you're talking about a national spotlight, something that those things stick. I think back to the blown national game with Josh Rosen and Steve Wilkes against the Broncos. You think back to the end of the Bruce Arians era with that 6-6 tie against Seattle that kind of showed people that Seahawks and the Cardinals were kind of reaching the end of their point of being able to have an iron grip on the NFC West. We saw the Rams being able to take rise the next year and have essentially controlled the division ever since outside of one solid 2019 year from the Niners defense and Jimmy Garoppolo. I'm excited to see what we'll have because getting a behind the scenes look at Arizona, especially this team that has so many unknowns in front of it. It's going to be very interesting. This could be very well a turning point for Cardinals football in the Cliff Kime era. If things don't go well, we could see a bit of a reset in some ways of the team uh, maybe moving towards signing Hollywood Brown. We'll see how DeAndre Hopkins plays if they get him a new deal. And we could be seeing the last year for J.J. Watt, especially since this is his final contract year with the injuries that have mounted up. The fact he could have a future ultimately as an NFL announcer, as he talked about this week when he saw Tom Brady's deal. I think that it's something to be excited about as a Cardinals fan that will get another look for the team, and hopefully it says something good about them and their future. Now, let's answer a couple of these questions as we get out of here tonight. Uh, the first question, at least, to answer comes from Cards fan Joanna, and this ultimately is talking about when it comes to the Arizona Cardinals what exactly is going to be their plan after June 1st? The cards are going to get about $10 million in cap room uh, as soon as June 1st hits. Uh, the idea behind this, I think, ultimately is going to be, hey, are they saving up for a specific free agent? Are there 
two or three veterans they're going to sign. We saw how they signed Daryl Williams to the contract, which has not been made official as of this recording, uh, but is intended to happen at least. That's something I think that's going to be very interesting because my guess is that I think, this is just my take on it, I think that there's a very good chance that either the Cardinals are simply going to be adding a couple of pieces to the mix as they come. They're freeing up some of Right now they've got the third lowest cap space in the NFL. But the way that Michael Bidwell has talked about it on Card's flight plan and how they've been able to make late signings work, you wonder if there is one or two specific free agents depending on their price. Now, as we've all talked about in the past, the Cards usually have their price set and they wait for players to come down as desperation comes in. This can be easily seen with Daryl Williams because he ended up taking a job after working out for the team maybe three weeks or so ago and finally signs for the veterans minimum. That's something, at least I think, that shows the way the Cardinals operate is that they know there's a certain number of jobs to go around. Guys are going to be forced to take deals. Perhaps there's one or two players in mind that they have that could sign to a decent deal, but I think it's very likely that they're kind of keeping that cash for either extending a player or two, getting some of that cash moved. Obviously, you can move things down the road. But if they did extend a player for the most part, you could, you know, you'd be kicking down the cap number and then trying to sign more players instead. So the idea behind of what I think we'll see here is the Cardinals will go to camp like how they've done before, and they'll see what weaknesses they have and will then use that money to be able to go out and bring in a free agent at their dollar that they want to be able to join the team. I think back to the Jermaine Gresham signing. Perhaps even we could look at the Marcus Peters trade. Uh, from I should say, excuse me, um, not Marcus Peters, um, but this is the other Chiefs cornerback that they had a couple of years ago. Uh, Cooper, Marcus Cooper, that's the name. They went and signed him to be the cornerback too, uh, made a trade for him, took on some of that salary. That, I think, is something that we could potentially see for the cards. Uh, ultimately, that's something that seems to be the case where there's at least cap flexibility, and I would not be shocked if the Cardinals kept a lot of that cap present, signed some guys to veteran minimum deals, and kept things around just in case they ended up having a similar injury to last year needed to make a trade, and were able to have cap space to make it work. Uh, that's something that we will see. Another question, at least, from at Dave Med Jr., asking about giving Kyman Cliff massive extensions to signal stability to free agents, but then turn around and not sign any free agents. Well, I think there's two things with this. The first one is they did go and sign a bunch of free agents. It just happened to be their own free agents. They went out and brought in a bunch of different guys and players, and as they've talked about, even with Cliff and Kime, that now that they've essentially proven themselves, have gotten that long-term extension, they felt a lot more confident in maybe more of this slower build. Now, the stability, I think, shows in a lot of ways, not necessarily that you're trying to sell something that isn't there. I think that's part of behind the question. This question, I think, is assuming, hey, everything's fine and hunky-dory. We got these big deals we're signing our GM and head coach to come to our team. I don't think Michael Bidwell sees it that way. I think that he sees it as rewarding the contracts for them, being able to kind of build for the future, and I think that he checks the box as saying, this is good enough. Now, whether that's a decision that people will disagree with on Michael Bidwell, that's something that I think is a valid conversation. It's something at least to look at where if you left them in the position of saying, hey, you're going to be coaching for your lives on a one-year deal, 
Well, if you don't believe in them that they're going to be able to do well, then you clearly are not going to believe in them to go ahead and be able to win out and get another deal or else you would have made that deal already. It's kind of like the bet. You know, a good example is if you think you're going to win the hand in poker and someone goes and andes up or I guess you could say raises the pot and you say, oh, you know what? I'm going to bluff there. But wait a minute now. If you thought you were going to truly win the hand and someone raised the stakes and suddenly you folded, clearly you didn't have nearly as much faith in your hand as you thought you did. And I think it's the same case here. If the Cardinals were to keep Kyman Cliff on that deal, or even let's say if they decided to offer a shorter term deal. Hey, guys, I know you're wanting a six-year deal. Guess what? We're giving you a three-year extension on top of it, or maybe just adding two years to the current contract. We want to wait and see a little bit. We'll reward you, but give you a bit more time. Clearly, then, you wouldn't believe that these guys are the future. You'd want to see more. And I think that there's a lot of people, especially in Arizona media, and I think I could even fall into this camp of being all right with that. A lot of people are good with wanting to see a bit more, considering that despite the progress the Cardinals have made, they haven't won any playoff games. There's been some collapses. There's definitely been questions about the long-term sustainability of the quarterback in this offense. And in some cases, maybe that does a bit of disservice to Cliff Kingsbury, who through the first three years we've seen has outlasted and done better than plenty and many of other NFL coaches, even experienced head coaches. So really, in the end, I think that Michael Bidwell ultimately believes in his coach and believes in his GM, and that's the decision that will essentially be carrying the Cardinals for at least the next two to three years because I don't see them after these new deals just simply moving on in case of a bad year. Maybe you need two bad years in a row. And in the case of Michael Bidwell, I've noted, he often usually has three strikes. Usually, like with Ken Wisenhunt, you took a look at the 2009 season, then after Kurt Warner moved on, you're like, all right, you got 2010 with Derek Anderson. That's his choice. Moved on from Matt Leinart. 2011 season, they went 8-8, eight and eight, won some games, but you really needed to see exactly what was going to be the case for Wisenhunt. And that 2012 collapse that we saw on offense, that gave him enough to move on. I also would argue that the same three strikes was given, but it was given more to the Steve Wilkes type of uh, operations and it was in a much shorter time frame. I think the first strike, when you look at everything, was just the opening two games of the season with Sam Bradford the getting blown out, losing 33-0, 24-6, looking completely inept overall, not getting the ball to the 50-yard line. It was so bad that it counted for a strike. They put Josh Rosen in. The Cardinals at least were able to come down. And you had maybe, I think, a second strike in the Broncos game in which you realized that Mike McCoy was going to be out now. That might not necessarily be the same for Steve Wilkes. I think you could look at a positive of the Packers game, but immediately following that forward progress, they go out and put up a dud against one of the worst teams in the league in the Detroit Lions, Matt Patricia and their team. And then down the stretch, you kind of knew that he was on his way out because you simply saw that the defense was not being able to win or adjust. And I think that ultimately that's what led to his dismissal. Um, Maybe the Cardinals were looking already to replace him partway through before everything even went down, but I really think that they didn't intend to hire him to fire him, obviously. It's just that things ended up going bad and quickly went from bad to worse. With the Cardinals, there's at least been positive momentum with Kingsbury to the point where I could see it being a case where you'd need a bad year this year, no playoffs, and then perhaps even a second bad year, and then depending on how things went, depending on how the approach would go, 
then you would need that third down year to be able to move on. I could see it being two because Cliff doesn't quite have the same cachet that Ken Wisenhunt had going to a Super Bowl. Um, we saw the Arizona Cardinals had only two years of that in 2016 and 2017 of perhaps a bit more down years to say. They still finished with an overall winning record for Bruce Arians. But I am curious if B.A. had returned for 2018 or they moved on to James Betcher, exactly what would have happened if that would have been kind of year three for the um, for the B.A. <laughs> uh, mentality. We would have kind of seen people be ready to move in a different direction. Uh, let's get on to the next question overall here. Uh, overall, I think that that's basically the key. Does drafting Trey McBride signal a shift in offensive identity? We've talked about this a bit. I think that what we could see is a bit more 11 personnel, maybe not the 12 personnel. A lot of what I would love to see is that this move could unlock more plays in the offense. We've seen the Kingsbury approach essentially be a lot of 10 personnel when backed up against a wall trying to spread teams out and letting guys win these one-on-one individual battles and getting up to the line quick and trying to find quick uh, quick reads and quick, uh, I guess not necessarily quick throws, but simple decisions for Kyler Murray. What I'd love to see would be an evolution where by disguising some of their offense, you would be able to see more 11 personnel. Zach Ertz being able to be there as a blocker, maybe even bringing in... Um, a second blocker and some 12 personnel a bit more under center. Uh, what we've seen with Cliff is he's done a decent job of taking the Cardinals approach, mostly under shotgun, and using different formations to accomplish the same sort of concepts. Like you'll be able to have a tight end lined up in the backfield who can be used as a blocker. And then the next play, you might have a similar but slightly different formation. And then Rondale Moore is in the same spot there. He ends up going and moves out rather than as a blocker. He just kind of slips out as almost a semi-running back. And the other running back is then able to stay in and, you know, either chip in or help in pass protection a bit um, or line up a little bit down in the slot as Chase Edmonds was prone to do and move downfield trying to find a mismatch against a linebacker. Cliff has at least been able to adjust. It's not been the simple Mike McCoy offense or like something up in Seattle but it hasn't been as wide open when you look at the power of being able to have a power run game, a quarterback under center, being able to utilize bootlegs, a bit more of a moving pocket, uh, forcing defenses to at least have to take that first step to cover the run. It's not something that you see as much when you're in the shotgun offense, and especially when you look at when teams focus on stopping the run against Arizona and the Cardinals get into these third and 11 situations. The only thing they really can do is drop into these types of plays and you see the defense pin their ears back and rush at Kyler. And then it's up on the quarterback to have to make a play. I think that by shifting their offensive focus, if they do that, it would allow things to be easier on the quarterback and would be able to allow for a lot more um, performance, at least where it'd be a better offensive identity. And that being said, I don't think it's going to change drastically. I just think that it might be that you end up seeing a more, diverse playbook overall it's able to incorporate a lot more different types and concepts and perhaps huddles a bit more too if the cardinals don't have hopkins and they're able to be in a spot where instead of having to you know simply trust that they're going to throw the ball to aj green on third and one where you've got that one-on-one shot maybe now you have to get up to the line see what the defense has for the most part be able to adjust move a man in motion a bit and suddenly you're able to now also disguise whether it's a run or a pass some utilize what the defense has and be able to even call an audible or two with what you're seeing versus uh, simply being able to get up to the line, 
and being able to do a quick read and then try to make a quick type of throw, uh, sometimes to the horizontal flat as well. Arizona's in a spot where I think that Kingsbury's offensive tendencies have held them back versus pushed them forward, and I'd love to see the offensive identity change. Hopefully, Trey McBride is an indication of that. All right, so we got the last question, at least for tonight, coming from at Monster Demo 3. The question here is, with the Arizona Cardinals, how will the offense look the first six weeks without Hopkins? I think answered some of this in the previous question. I think a lot of it is going to be trying to be able to find different ways to hide or disguise and maybe not necessarily bait defenses into plays. But I think that what we could see, for example, is a bit more of the wide receivers moving around. Cliff and Kaima said over and over again they see Hollywood as inside and out versus just simply the slot role that they had assigned to Christian Kirk. They've said, oh, yeah, Kirk can play outside, but they clearly showed that it was not a necessity to move him around, but more that they would have a preference to keep him in the slot. Being able to have um, the likes of A.J. Green uh, staying in one spot or even moving him around, uh, having an, the opportunity to put Rondale Moore outside, I think could open up the offense and make things a bit more difficult for defenses. A great example for that would be, let's say you get up to the line, you adjust to your typical 10 personnel look. Suddenly you can end up seeing the Cardinals, you know, run the ball against a light box. And then on down number two, you end up seeing a switch up where Rondale Moore goes to the outside, Hollywood Brown on the other. AJ Green comes across into the slot. And then Zach Ertz is lined up as a tight end, uh, ready to block. You got your James Conner in the back foot, and another tight end, at least, comes onto the field in Trey McBride. Suddenly, the Cardinals could shift into a 10-personnel type of look with the tight ends. But in this case, they would bring A.J. Green down into the slot, get a mismatch against maybe a smaller corner for the most part. And then you're not sure whether they're going to be trying to run the ball again after picking up a certain number of downs or if they're going to be trying to take a shot. They've got two speedy guys on the outside that defenses and the safeties are going to have to account for. That may open up the field underneath for A.J. Green with his larger size, or even a Zach Ertz if he gets matched up on a linebacker. I think that that's the approach that Arizona needs to take, is rather than uh, rather than locking into these type of things, Cliff has talked about how he needed to do more without Hopkins there. Because Last year, what they essentially did was, all right, Antoine Wesley, you're in hop spot, and uh, go get him, kid. And then they threw the ball uh, on the same kind of concepts and routes they did to Max Williams, but a lot more feeding of Zach Ertz, especially in clutch situations where they normally would have targeted hop, they went to Ertz in his hands instead as that reliable target. I think that we could see the Cardinals offense go through Hollywood, through utilizing some of A.J. Green and then Zach Ertz with Rondale being kind of the Christian Kirk dial up a couple plays for him. Um, maybe he has a bit of that Chase Edmonds role. And I think that could be very similar to some of the places, but moving those guys around, I think will be what Cliff will put an emphasis on, given from what he said about needing to make more adjustments. Then when DeAndre Hopkins comes back, the change I think that we could see is maybe A.J. Green gets sent to the bench. It's possible that they look at that and say, hey, we've got everything that we need for the success. We don't know what Hopkins' success is going to you know, look like as far as on the field coming back. You at least know, hopefully, what you have in A.J. Green, being able to keep him fresh for the playoffs versus being able to have him as an every-down receiver and being able to use more of that two-tight-end action, even getting Hollywood a break by simply just you know, popping in Rondale for a spot into the slot would be something that I think could be super useful. 
using a lot more of the Cardinals depth to be able to help and moving guys around to be able to essentially scheme. And that's where it's going to fall on cliff is what I think the offense could look like while they are without DeAndre Hopkins for the first six weeks. Thank you guys for tuning in. That will be it for this episode of the ROTV pod. I should be having hopefully soon the Cardinals draft review that may be up at least actually this week. Uh, should be at least exciting for that. Um, then after that, the show will probably take on a bit of a hiatus. Uh, obviously, we'll be popping back in every once in a while. I should be looking over the summer for a guest or two. But in the meantime, this is kind of the doldrums of the NFL season. A signing or two goes on. A couple of things of news will break. But it's mostly going to be preparing and getting ready for the top-notch training camp coverage. Um, being able to be back there this year, hopefully, will be something we can look at. Uh, in the meantime, make sure you follow the pod at ROTV Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can find us at Apple Podcasts, Google Play Podcasts, places like Spotify, as well as, as always, on RevengeOfTheBirds.com. And you can follow me on Twitter as well, at BlakeMurphy7. Thanks again for tuning in. It's been the Revenge of the Birds podcast, and go Cardinals.